Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Build Value by Choice podcast show. I am your host, Nana Bonsu. I am the president and CEO of Infinite Horizons Incorporated, located in the state of Maryland. Today's topic is about making sure that you have a sellable business, especially if you are in the manufacturing industry. And I'm glad to have on as my guest, Jason Pittman, who is also the president and CEO of Exit Advisory. He's, he resides in Rolling Meadows in the state of Illinois, and uh, he's a certified value builder. Welcome, Jason, to the show. Thanks, Nana, for having me. All right. I'd like to, before we get, you know, before we get into questions, I, I'm just going to provide some, some data that I pulled from the effective um, 2021 state of manufacturing uh, report just to provide some kind of context. And it looks like uh, Dave, the, the effective CEO, Dave Evans, um, just kind of mentions that companies are moving quickly and decisively uh, in the manufacturing industry to, um, to digitize um, their, their business using uh, investing in a lot of digital resources um, because of all the supply chain uh, disruptions. Uh, 95% of business owners are saying that the pandemic has a long-term effect on their business. And the same number agree that digital transformation is essential to their company's success um, in the future. And as companies are moving into the post-pandemic era, they are looking to future-proof their businesses, uh, including uh, bringing their businesses uh, back uh, from overseas into the U.S., um, as well as engaging in sustainability uh, ventures. Now, this brings me to the, and also there is a, a 2021 report from the United Nations Industrial Development Organization, which also talks about poten the potential for a 12% increase in manufacturing. So on the, on the one hand, last year was tough for businesses because of disruptions by COVID and other things. On the, on the other hand, based on the United, United Nations Industrial Development Organization report, there is optimi optimism for growth. So this is an opportunity. On the one hand, if we talk about demographic changes, a lot of business owners who are baby boomers, they are getting to, uh, they already you know, either at or past the retirement age. So some are probably thinking about retiring or exiting or just um, engaging in some kind of succession plan. Uh, and even those that may be in the Generation X, they may still have some, some ideas about maybe transitioning at some point or spending less time in their business that they've dedicated a lot of time into. Um, and then, of course, you know, so that's, that's one force, right? So we have the hit last year from the uh, COVID. We have demographic changes as far as baby boomers who who formed the largest um, percentage of business owners and entrepreneurship in history. And you have, it's almost, it's almost becoming like every decade or so something major happens. You had a 2008 global financial crisis. <laughs> you have COVID last year. So you have some owners that are nervous that over the, they don't want to wait around for another disruption to their business. So some, somewhere within the next five to 10 years, people are going to be thinking about if they have, if they're not thinking about it already, they should be thinking about how to make sure their business is sellable, meaning that the business is not just producing income for themselves, but they can just up and leave 
or they can reduce the amount of time they spend in the business um, when they come, when they feel like they're ready uh, and whatnot. And that's that's your specialty area. So I wanted to ask you what you're seeing in terms of um, the preparedness that business owners um, tend to have um, when it comes to when they come to you as a broker um, to whether they want to sell their business or whether they want to they want to make sure that they will be ready when the time comes. Uh, so I want to I want to start there. Sure, and I would say in terms of preparedness for sale, how sellable the business is, um, especially amongst manufacturers, can vary a bit because there's so many types of manufacturers. I'll say that upfront, but in general, I'd say the most present issue is because of COVID and its impact on the supply chain, and part of being ready to sell the business is taking a good look at your suppliers. You have one that you're completely dependent on and how can you prepare? Because that's a big issue people are having right now, right? Is yes. buying the raw materials they need, um, getting the machinery, the components to make the machines. And it's caused this huge bottleneck that everyone's feeling. And the people that are taking the time to make sure they have backup suppliers, multiple suppliers, renegotiating um, the agreements they have with their suppliers is uh, key because I think a lot of times it's the it focus is on revenue and sales and the customer, which is important, but you also need to be thinking about your reliance on your suppliers. How can so one of the things that one of the things that, that I liked about um, um, Southwest Airlines, for instance, was back in 2001, they had locked in, locked in um, oil futures for like a decade or so. So when the 2001 uh, 9-11 thing happened, they were the only airline that was making profits because they were able to keep their oil uh, prices and costs low. Uh, they had locked it in, whereas other, and because oil prices you know, spiked, Right at the oil prices eating into the profit margins for other airlines. So, how can what are some of the ways, some of the techniques? Because it comes down to in any negotiation, it just comes down to buyer power and seller power. So, um, what are some of the things that uh, business owners can do to lock in, um, you know, either current prices or um, or just favorable terms with their suppliers for the next couple of years? Yeah, that's a good question. I think it's really just a matter of open communication. You know, these are people that you are likely to have relationships for a long time and everyone's experiencing the same problems. So it might be as simple as opening the dialogue and asking for more terms. If you have uh, net 30 to pay, uh, maybe ask for 60 days to pay. Uh, you're going to have different terms of your agreements with different types of suppliers, right? Mm -hmm. And it's, it's really going to be as simple as that. Now, me personally, I'm not the one that goes out and helps people ne negotiate with their suppliers. I'm sure there's probably better people uh, more equipped to answer that question in particular. But I think just keep it simple, open communication with your suppliers, just like you would with your employees or your customers is going to be the best strategy right now. One of the things that, um, that, you know, why should, 
why should business owners be thinking about um, even if they're not ready to sell, right? Because we talk about sellable business and sellable business doesn't mean that you're selling. Um, right. What are some of the things that business owners, it's imperative that business owners, if they're not doing it now and thinking about it now, the first the two steps they should be taking to make sure that they're not exposed to any kind of risk, whether it's supplier or, or some other uh, factor. Yeah, it's in terms of, because you touched on a couple things there. I think it's important to have a sellable business, even if you don't intend to sell, because one of the main reasons businesses go on the market is because life happens. Something unexpected comes up, uh, poor health, death in the family, burnout, whatever the case is, something unexpected came up that is forcing the owner to put the business on the market. So that's the main reason I would say you want to focus on being sellable. Now, the things that are easy that people that could be looking at now to uh, increase their sellability, the low-hanging fruit is usually financials uh, because this is the first thing people are drawn to. Taking a good, solid look at your personal expenses that you're running through the business, discretionary expenses, and really focus on showing profit. Um, it's, it's a good way to receive the benefits of being a small business owner by running personal automobile and personal travel through the business. But if you're really wanting to focus on the sellability of your business and increasing the value of it, that's one of the immediate things I see that most uh, small businesses could start focusing on is take a good solid look at your financials because if you need to talk to someone next week about a potential acquisition, that's going to be one of the first things if they're serious that they're going to want to take a look at. They're going to take a look at at least the last three years of financials. They're going to want to see the P&L and your balance sheet. And, your, and at some point, if there is an offer or a letter of intent, they're going to see the tax return. Um, so you, the last thing you want to do is get into an argument with someone where you're trying to substantiate all these personal expenses that you're running through the business. Uh, so this is where someone should be sitting down with your accountant or a fractional CFO and have a conversation about, this is what I'm trying to do. I don't want to maximize uh, my personal benefit. I want to maximize the profitability of the company. Uh, that way I have a, neat, a better chance at selling it and uh, receive more from it. Because if it's the type of business that will likely involve some kind of bank financing, if an, in, another individual operator were to buy the business, they may need bank financing. Bankers are not necessarily going to accept all these discretionary expenses that you're running through the business, whether you can substantiate them or not. Uh, so that can be one of the immediate deal breakers uh, for most people that they can start working on today uh, to get ready. Right. Um, and I imagine that they also want to make sure that they uh, have somebody take a look at their entity structure, whether or not they are, they are an LLC or S-Corp or C-Corp, mm -hmm. um, just to see if they're leaving uh, money on the table uh, as far as taxes. That's um, another good one. There are, um, you know, most brokers or M&A advisors are going to know many attorneys um, that are all over their market that can help uh, do some pre-diligence. So I know attorneys that will do sort of pre-diligence work with my clients that are going to market and they'll sit down with them and they'll look at their structure and uh, 
think about, okay, does it make sense to modify any of these entities? What are the things that uh, we can do to start preparing for a sale to even minimize the tax hit uh, when you do sell the business? Because how you're structured will play into that, whether you're an S-Corp or a C-Corp, whether you own real estate and whether that is in a different entity. All these things can provide so much complexity that you know, it could add up when it comes time to sell. So this is another area that's good to think about. Okay. Um, what is the, the paradigm shift that, that you advocate for as far as um, the owner changing their mindset from just looking at operating income to value, meaning multiples of their EBITDA? Yeah, it's going to come down to those other drivers of value in the business. You know, after financials being one of the big ones, it's going to be growth potential and how reliant on the owner themselves the business is. Uh, So if the owner is the only salesperson, that's going to have an effect on the multiple, let's say. So let's use two shops with the same amount of revenue, um, approximately the same amount of profits but one the owner is the salesperson and then the other one the owner's more hands-off as a salesperson Uh, maybe that salesperson is starting to train another one Uh, the owner is more focused on the strategic aspects of business too is therefore people are going to feel more comfortable applying a higher multiple to that business whereas the other one it's going to hit a ceiling because they're going to realize Okay, we're going to have to hire somebody or multiple people to replace the owner. And oftentimes, especially in businesses with less than $10 million in revenue, the owner is usually very skilled, very competent, and wears a lot of different hats. So that, that can become an issue right there. If, if the owner now, were taken out of the, the middle of the business and it were to essentially grind to a halt within a week or two. That's, that's a big problem that you can start addressing. Yeah. Yeah. Now, the manufacturing industry is big. You have chemicals, you have food processing, you have petroleum, steel, and uh, you know, other, other, um, other uh, industries within the sector. Um, do, is there a difference between how um, owners in you know, these you know, different industries um, you know, should go about thinking about your business or what are some of the similarities within the manufacturing sector and, and, the, you know, and some differences? And then, of course, as compared to, for instance, say, uh, services, for instance. Right. I'd say one of the big things, it's, it's going to be sort of uh, kind of what we talked about, the big difference between the manufacturers and service industries. The manufacturers oftentimes rely on a variety of suppliers. Some are going to be raw materials, some are going to be parts, some are going to be sort of added value services. You know, um, each step of the production is done in a different place, whereas services, they, they don't have that problem. It's more focused on labor, um, making sure that you have people that can go out and deliver service. So I would say the difference is, if I understood the question, between kind of the problems an owner in the manufacturing sector versus services, I think that's going to be one of the big things right there. 
And what about within the manufacturing sector itself, like the difference between like somebody in the, in the food, manuf- uh, food processing business and somebody within the oil and gas business, for instance? Well, yeah, between metals and oils and gas, that's, um, I'd say, you know, in Chicago, we have a lot of metal manufacturers from stamping to uh, milling to just bending shops. And uh, so I couldn't speak too much to oil and gas per se, uh, but the, in the manufacturing part of that sector, I think the issues are going to be very similar because they're all, reply, they're all relying on suppliers of different things. Uh, they all have labor shortages right now. Uh, and they're all in the process of figuring out how to bring some of the work back from overseas uh, in the uh, early part of the production. Uh, so the difference between like oil and gas and metals, you know, nothing comes to mind off the top of my head, but I'm sure there are uh, sector-specific things you could uh, think about. Over the next 12 months, what do you see what do you see as the biggest opportunities that business owners have and how should that factor into some of the decisions that they try to make? Yeah, right now, I think uh, one of the big trends is private equity. You know, they're, they built their platform companies and they're looking for uh, acquisitions that they can bolt on. So that's one of the big trends is start thinking about in your particular market, who are the big players? Start thinking, start building a list of potential acquirers. And the, the trends right now in terms of buyers that you can think of, you know, obviously other manufacturers, um, but also wholesale distributors, they are also looking at buying uh, manufacturers. In addition to the retail end of it, people that are actually selling products to consumers are actually on the hunt for uh, the ability to manufacture products and even your customers. And uh, and on top of that, government agencies as well um, have thrown their hat in the ring. Uh, So identifying the buyers that are looking for your type of business. So if you know you're producing something for oil and gas, uh, start looking at who the players are, build a list, and start thinking about how large they are in comparison to your company. Are they you know, more than 10 times the revenue or 20 times the revenue? Because if, the, if they're too much larger, uh, they, they might have more of a slash and burn uh, approach to your business where they want some things, but they're not necessarily going to keep everything. Uh, we're a company that's uh, smaller than yours. You might not have the resources to uh, take over and uh, also do any kind of growth. So identify the companies that are active as buyers uh, or uh, for potential buyers, think of them as other manufacturers, wholesale distributors, people that are active somewhere else in the supply chain. Uh, and at some point when you're ready, these would be a good initial wave of people to reach out to, whether it's yourself or an M&A advisor, 
But if you have a list of people uh, prepared that are in your orbit already, um, I think that will be a big trend because these uh, there are big institutional and strategic buyers that are on the hunt in different sectors. Now, if, if I'm a business owner and I'm not thinking about selling, I'm thinking about passing it down to my children or even to my management team to take over, does it still make sense for me to still compile this list of potential acquirers? Um, only as uh, a contingency. You, you know, hope for the best and plan for the worst. If, uh, if your intent is to turn it over to kids or employees, that's great. But if you're taking time to think about exit strategy, then it's definitely worth it. Have, have some people in mind um, that would make good acquirers and be a logical fit. But you know, I, it's a, it's a matter of time. If people aren't going to make the time to do it, they're just not going to do it. So think of it as a plan B. Yeah, I was also thinking of it as you no, know, thinking of it as you know, perhaps in terms of decision making quality, right? Um, even if you're going to pass it down, even if I plan on passing it down to my children, um, how should I be objectively looking at it from the perspective of you know an acquirer, yeah. right? In right, I would say from that perspective, it would be diversity of management. If, um, if it's the kind of thing where you want to turn it over to your kids, maybe you do so slowly. It's not, maybe it's not just one day they're the new uh, owner. It's the type of thing where if there are more shareholders in the business, that is going to reflect that diversity of opinion that you're talking about, making sure that it's not just one person who's siloed making all these decisions. And uh, so it could be the kind of thing where you're going to turn it over to the children at some point, have them be part of the management team, have them be a shareholder. Uh, and it might be the kind of thing where part of your existing management team should be shareholders as well and have multiple uh, ownership stakes in the company. Uh, more professional acquirers will see that as a sign of strength. Now, the one of the things that you touched on was the fact that companies that are typically below making below $10 million in annual revenues tend to wear, uh, their owners tend to wear multiple hats. How, what are some of the ideas that you have for them to be able to reduce um, their, uh, the time they spend in their business just so they can then lift your head up and start focused on the horizon, whether it's government regulation onslaught that's coming or whether it's you know, some unforeseen things like pandemics and, and other, other negative uh, factors, or even retirement and, and, and other uh, potential push factors like, you know, healthcare scares and, and things of that sort. Yeah, I think, um, so if I understand the question, um, I'm sorry. I think I, I think I lost the question. Yeah, no. I, I'm I'm thinking of time management, right? A lot of owners, you know, they wear multiple hats. A lot, of, you know, they basically the hub of their business. A lot of things, you know, run through them. They feel yeah. like they can't gotcha. trust, you know, you know, people to look at the details and, and get everything go right. But yet, they're so enmeshed in their business that they're missing out. What it's about being able to participate in certain masterminds with fellow business owners or or whether it's about being able to plan for the future, like some of the items that you were, you were, you were talking about. Um, 
what are some of the things that they should be either be delegating or just, you know, just systematizing just so they can uh, free themselves up to take care of some of these other issues before they run into some kind yeah, of that's, iceberg? Yeah, that's a good question because everybody's got some of those things. So I'd say rather than uh, guess at what they are, the, what you could start doing now, start making a list, start tracking what you're doing. What do you spend your time doing? Because most of us don't really know unless we're tracking it. And there are, you can Google it, there's different schools of thought towards this. Um, and using the value builder system, we have tools that do this as well. But basically the idea is track what you do, figure out what are the repetitive tasks? How much time uh, do you spend doing them? And it could be even as simple as uh, one way I heard someone try this was they basically committed to do this for a week. Every 15 minutes, an alarm went off on their phone and they stopped, made a note, jotted down, okay, what have I been doing for the last 15 minutes? And it's a constant reminder to go back to your notes, jot down, okay, what are you doing? And then the idea is at the end of the week, you should have a pretty good snapshot that you can start to categorize and say, okay, I spent an hour here, I spent 10 hours here. And what are the things that I need to do what are the things that are easy to teach someone else to do? And that, that's a good starting point right there, uh, because for everybody, it's going to be a little bit different what those things are, right? right. Uh, but that's something everybody can do right now to start figuring out what am I doing every week and what makes sense? Because once you go through that process, it'll probably be pretty glaring what, what the first couple things you could get off your plate are. Great. Well, um, I know we uh, we had time, so I want to uh, bring this into a close. But um, are there like any two or three um, pieces of advice that you you have for uh, business owners and our listeners? Um, well, I would say start now with exit planning. So reach out to uh, your accountant, reach out to your attorney, and let them know. Hey, th I want to start with some exit planning. I want to make sure I can sell my business or turn it over to junior, you know, start talking to your advisors now rather than waiting because uh, I think that's one of the things we might've touched on early on, but a lot of businesses that go to market are unsuccessful in selling. And one of the main reasons is they just weren't prepared for something unexpected that happened. So talking to your accountant and attorney now um, start, getting your financials and legal uh, aspects punched up and talk to a broker or an advisor of some sort, start talking about maybe what the, the value of the business could be, start talking about potential acquirers, uh, what kind of strategy um, for going to market. That way you can at least start coalescing a plan in your mind uh, versus just waiting till all of a sudden it's an emergency. And uh, pre-diligence. Bring that up when you talk to an attorney or a broker. Um, for example, I can provide people with a checklist. When they start working with me, I say, here are the things we're going to need to think about to get through closing. Some of this is going to be my responsibility. Some of it's going to be your responsibility. Some of it's going to be the buyer's responsibility. But what's nice about looking at a checklist like that, it gets you thinking about all that homework that's ahead of you. Some of it you can start doing now, but it's you'll have a sense of confidence knowing that a lot of this stuff is done, ready. And if 
you needed to sell or wanted to sell, you have all that ready to go. Right. And it, and I saw some numbers that was uh, pretty staggering. I think somewhere between 65 to 80% of businesses that go to either sell or pass it down to um, their kids or, or their management don't work out because whatever assumptions they had you know, about the business value was actually not the case. Is yeah, that's a common reason is uh, just overpriced. Um, you know, it's an emotional process. So it's owners often have a certain value in their mind. And a lot of it's tied to the time they've spent, the years they've spent. Uh, so sometimes when an owner and their employees or children or a third party buyer uh, get together and look at everything, that there's going to be a big clash there in terms of valuation. That's one of the, the common reasons I'd say, uh, but you're all right about the statistics, about 80% of businesses that go on the market uh, fail to actually transact. And only 10% of businesses that go on the market are represented by a broker or an advisor. So it tells you something about the nature of um, maybe the owner being caught off guard, putting their business on the market. They're not really prepared. They're not really represented. And they don't, they're not getting good advice. Uh, they might not have a team of people working with them. Um, so they're just not prepared. And unfortunately, a lot of those deals are going to, if they, many of them will fail to draw much attention at all. But about half of the deals that receive an offer, accept an offer, half of those will fail during due diligence. Again, because going back to lack of preparation. So if, if, if they follow the two, uh, the two pieces of advice that you offered, which is talk to your advisors and start the pre-due uh, pre diligence process, then that will put them closer to the 10% that actually succeed because they'll be better prepared. When the time Absolutely, comes. because you're prepared and you've got, you're getting good advice from people who've been there. They can help you avoid those common deal breakers. That's great. Now, if people want to get in touch with you or follow your work, how can they do that? Oh, they can find me on LinkedIn, uh, Jason Pittman, or uh, company page, Exit Advisor. Uh, go to uh, exitadvisor.org, and uh, you'll find out uh, about the ways you can work with me. So happy to connect with anyone if they want to talk more about this stuff. Exitadvisor.org, and Jason Pittman, P-I-T-T-M-A-N, uh, on LinkedIn. Yep. Thank you, Jason. I appreciate your time. My pleasure.